From Brown Cow Studios in Gallatin Gateway, Montana, this is News Nerds. I'm Ezra Graham. If last week's show was for the history buffs, today is for the people who love to eat. Today we have a gargantuan show with Christopher Kimball of Milk Street and Matt Sartwell of Kitchen Arts and Letters. First, we'll play my recent interview with the great Christopher Kimball, the cook with the bow tie. You might know him from his work with America's Test Kitchen, where he founded the classic food magazine Cooks Illustrated. The magazine famously accepts no advertising and tests every recipe until they've exhausted every possible combination they can think of. He left America's Test Kitchen in 2015 and went on to found Milk Street. Milk Street focuses on changing the way you cook. And as Chris will tell us, his exploration of other food cultures both influenced his choice to leave America's test kitchen and inspired Milk Street. As he states on the Milk Street website, the company extends, quote, an invitation to the cooks of the world to sit at the same table, unquote. After my interview with Christopher, we'll head to New York, where we'll step inside the famed bookstore, Kitchen Arts and Letters. I was fortunate to geek out about cookbooks with Matt Sartwell, who is the managing partner at the store. We'll talk about kitchen reference, books for beginners, and more. It's not only a store for home cooks, because Julia Child and James Beard stopped by as well. The store was founded by Knock Waxman in 1983 and has been America's best-known culinary bookstore ever since. Knock died in 2021, but has been remembered by the culinary community for his love of cooking and sharing that love with the world. It's Wednesday, January 25th, and this is News Nerds. I'm so excited to start this episode, I can barely wait. Christopher Kimball is a cook, author, and television and radio host credited for founding America's Test Kitchen, the Boston-based organization home to Cooks Illustrated and Cooks Country. He's known for his focus on practical Test Kitchen-approved recipes and techniques for home cooks. After he left America's Test Kitchen, Kimball founded Milk Street, and since 2016, Kimball has been producing radio and television episodes and writing cookbooks under the Milk Street name. His most recent cookbook is Cook What You Have, Make a Meal Out of Almost Anything. Christopher Kimball, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, pleasure. Thank you. So if I have this right, you went to Columbia for primitive art. Is that right? <laughs> well, I did go to Columbia. I think I graduated. I'm pretty sure I did. I'm not quite sure. Um, okay. Yeah, well, I went in 69 and uh, there was, you know, I don't think we had finals maybe one year out of the four years because we were busy protesting the war, et cetera. So it was a pretty turbulent time at Columbia. I did major in art history and then primitive art. Uh, I worked down at the Museum of Natural History on Wednesday afternoons in their Congo collection, uh, just fooling around and playing with the musical instruments and stuff. Uh, and then I decided, or I, I applied for a, a PhD at Cornell and uh, was admitted, but was told I'd never get a job. So uh, I decided to go into publishing instead. So, yeah, I was kind of trying to make a correlation between after you graduated to when you started to publish the early uh, kind of uh, the early conception of Cooks Illustrated. So what was happening um, in those years? And then how did you ultimately start the magazine? I graduated Columbia in 73. I worked in New York for a couple of years and then I moved up to Connecticut I, I ran a company with someone else that 
was a seminar company. We gave courses on publishing topics. And then in late 79, I left to start Cooks and Cooks came out the spring of 1980. At the time, it was more of a traditional magazine. We had advertising, uh, but it was it was geared toward people who love to cook. It wasn't travel, you know, it wasn't uh, the life, it wasn't a lifestyle publication. It was a, a serious cooking publication, which was quite different than what was in the market at the time. When did you decide that you loved to cook and you wanted to, you know, have that as your career? Well, I, I cooked ever since I was seven or eight, so I always loved to cook. Um, making it my career was, you know, in that late 70s, you know, I cooked a lot. I was taking cooking classes. I had met James Beard. I sort of met a few people in and around the food world. And then I love publishing. I, I love magazines. And so I put the two together. I just felt no one was talking to people who love to cook. It was all about dinner parties and travel and being a gourmet, which I thought was kind of silly uh, and never wanted to be a gourmet. So that's when it came together. I just thought there were a lot of people out there who didn't really know how to cook and we should talk about how to cook. So I want to talk about the format of America's Test Kitchen because, uh, you know, I feel like Cooks Illustrated and a lot of the other work that you did there was really known for its format. There was no advertising. You had a letter from the editor right. and then a bunch of recipes. That's kind of it. There's a bunch of great illustrations, very well-tested recipes. And then the same with your uh, television show. I mean, there was a specific format. How did you decide on that format? Well, it was... Fairly well. First of all, in the '80s, it was a real magazine. You know, it had color and stuff. Then, in uh, the, it's a long story, but I restarted the magazine in 1993, and I I thought a lot about what I wanted to do. So I took the color out. For starters, there was no color except on the cover. Um, I wanted to focus on the real techniques of cooking, and so I thought illustrations were better than photographs for that. Uh, and I didn't want it to look like a glossy magazine. I wanted to feel like it had a lot of value and there was a lot of information there. So really, it was a it was a cross between a newsletter and a magazine. Really, um, I, I had this uh, publication from the Brooklyn Botanical Garden. Some my mother had given me or something. It was in black and white. It, it looked awful. Right, <laughs> the printing was terrible. It had these crappy illustrations, but it had it was full of good information. So my feeling was the less glossy it looked, the more valuable it seemed, right? It's the reverse. Mm -hmm. So uh, I wanted to create something that did not look glossy, did not look like lifestyle. The TV show started in 2000. The, the new cook started in 93, but seven years later, we did a TV show. And again... I the, the format was me and someone else a cook, and I would play the part or act the part of the uh, the viewer, and I would ask the questions that he or she would want me to ask. So that that sort of teacher student back and forth was the format, and I was standing in for the viewer. So I, I didn't want it to be again glossy. I didn't want it to be lifestyle. I wanted to actually say, well. You know, why did you do that? Or why did you pre-cook the potatoes? Or how does gluten form just by flour and water being combined? So it was really a teaching uh, format. And that's how I came up with that. 
Did you go over the questions that you're going to ask the cooks before you started the show? Oh, no, no, I never, I never, on the radio show too, I don't, even today, when we do the call-ins, I don't look at notes ahead of time. Um, We we do have notes available, but I I never, I never do my homework because I I think it's, it's much better uh, to, I think it's much better to do it in the moment and and I'm really interested. I mean, if someone, if Julie or Bridget were cooking or whomever, I, I'd ask the question that normally I would want to ask, right? Uh, because otherwise, you know, the, the audience, audiences know if it's real or not, right? Like, like if you listen to the car talk guys, you know, uh-huh. they, they were having a good time and they'd say, well, we'd be a lot smarter if we had the answers, you know? <laughs> so right. I think that impromptu nature is really what makes a show. Because you want to, you want to be in the moment, and and you want to make it make it real. It's not real if you prepped. So I want to talk about if it's if it's okay with you why you left America's Test Kitchen, and then we'll get to Milk Street and what you're doing now. Um, what was the the timeline, and you, what was the pro- progression of your thoughts towards America's Test Kitchen uh, before you you kind of said it's enough? I'm going to leave. Were you? gradually getting unhappy well it, it's really a function of putting aside all the business stuff which i let's leave that aside um yeah my cooking had changed a lot um you know Otto Lange had just come out with his first book fairly recently um i had done a lot of traveling with the family vietnam and all sorts of other places ecuador and italy and uh so you know, I was starting to think that there was a new way of thinking about food. It's not so much getting a recipe from Chiang Mai in Thailand or getting a recipe from Hungary or Budapest or whatever. It was about how these how home cooks thought about putting foods together, right? So that really got me interested in thinking, well, you know, America is a melting pot, but the way we think about food and cooking is very different than most other places in the world. For example, most places in the world don't use a lot of meat because meat's expensive. It's more of a flavor. For example, a lot of places in the world use fermented sauces like soy sauce and fish sauce, et cetera. A lot of places use a lot of chilies. The Ottoman Empire had 88 different spices, right? Uh, so all those things make you think, well, well okay, that we're going to put sweet and sour together or bitter, uh, or we're going to do chard. There's these other flavors, chewy. So what really drove my interest in Milk Street was changing the way I wanted to cook because the the French method, which is the basis of most American cooking, is to take simple ingredients with a lot of technique and a lot of time and slowly develop flavor, like beef bourguignon, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not how the rest of the world cooks. The rest of the world takes a lot of very different flavors that are not mild and puts them together which means it's not time and temperature, it's really the initial flavors. So th- that's a very different way of thinking about cooking. It turns out it's a little easier because there's less time involved, but it's also more interesting because, you know, like if you do uh, Vietnamese caramel shrimp, right, whatever, uh, you have you have you make a caramel sauce with sugar and, and you take it to the edge of burning it, so it's not really sweet. Uh, you have fish sauce, you have shallots, you have ginger, you have this and that, and the other thing, some some chilies, and you have all these amazing flavors in about 10 minutes. 
So my interest in Milk Street was I've changed the way I cook. I want to explore that, learn more about it, travel the world, get taught by home cooks and bring that back here. And, you know, maybe we can change the way we cook here based upon how people cook in other places. So uh, in a lot of the recipes that you have in your newer books, um, you know, they're they're more simple. Uh, but, you know, as you were mentioning, they incorporate different ingredients than I would have seen America's test kitchen use. Um, do you think that the recipes that you're creating now are aimed at creating uh, an America that's more healthy, has less meat that, you know, that will contribute less to huge climate change. Is that something that you've been aiming at creating? No, no, it's just <laughs> about the flavor. It's not about any. No, look, look, I, come on. I mean, we can argue about whether grazing cattle, you know, on pasture is worse than, you know, plowing fields and planting vegetables, whatever. No, I mean, I, I think healthy is, you know, as Julia Child said, you know, moderation in all things, including moderation, um, just having a balanced diet, not eating processed foods. You know, I do not eat processed foods. I cook from scratch. I, I don't go out to restaurants very much anymore, although I certainly enjoy it when I do. But, you know, th that'll give you a healthy diet, right? J just don't buy processed foods and cook from scratch. And that's all you need to know. Uh, you know, with some sense of moderation. So whether you have this much meat or that much meat, you know, sometimes you have a steak and other times you don't eat meat for four days, you know, whatever. So no, it's not about that. It's about flavor. It's about enjoying your food. It's about sitting down to a meal and with friends and neighbors and family and cooking for them. It's about, um, you know, if you go to Paris, right, and people after work go to a cafe or they go to dinner, whatever, the the it's a social event right it's not just about filling up calories i, I know people i was there recently who's who said sometimes they skip a meal because they, they don't have someone to eat the meal with right because it's an essentially social event so i put food in that context it's social it's about community uh it's about flavor it's about enjoyment it's about talking and, and having conversation so i i'm not you know I'm not a big fan of a fake hamburger. I, I think a fake hamburger is insane. I think if you want to eat a hamburger, eat a hamburger, right? You don't do it every day. Maybe you don't do it every week, but eat, eat a real burger. Right? You know, talk about processed food. If you see what's in some of those burgers, they might have 20 different ingredients, all of which are highly processed. It's probably got more fat than real meat, right? It's probably less healthy than a real burger. So let's use real food. Let's try to use local food whenever possible and cook from scratch and, and and have some sense of moderation in your diet. And that's that's all you need to know. So right? you've been doing you've been doing a lot more traveling lately. Um, and there is this episode of um, of Milk Street that I was watching. And it really was interesting to me to see this this new culture that you were traveling into. Tell me about your trip to uh, Yulapa. It's it's on the Pacific coast of Yulapa Mexico. Yulapa on the Pacific coast of Mexico. Yeah. This, you, yeah. said, you said it's where it's where you fell in love with, quote, the concept of standing in the water and eating pie out of hand, unquote. If you if you go, uh, yeah, if, if you travel down the coast from the main city there, and uh, it's about a 20 minute drive and you get to a little cove 
And they have these little taxi boats that are like 22 feet long, narrow. And everything that goes down to Yalapa, which is about a half hour ride down the coast, comes by from the sea, from speaking from the ocean. Uh, there is a road over the mountain, but it doesn't quite get all the way and it's very steep. And so really they're supplied entirely by the water. So including refrigerators, concrete blocks, bags of cement. I mean, everything goes by boat. So it's, it's kind of cool. So you get there. Uh, there is a little, um, not a resort, but a one end, there's a beach and there's some tourists there. But it's a very small town, maybe two or three places you can stay. You know, it's very small. And then you you walk inland to the real town, which is half a mile inland. And that's pretty cool, small place on a river. But there's a woman there who uh, she and her daughter, I think, still make the pies. They have about eight different kinds of pie. They do lemon meringue, but they do like a cheese pie. They do corn pie, some other things, chocolate, et cetera, pecan. And then uh, her son, who worked in the city, came back uh, to sell his mother's pies on the beach. So he has a green Tupperware bowl with a cover. And he goes around with a pie sliced in, in pieces and he sells them to the tourists. And I, I, I got to know him a little bit and I watched him. He's an incredible salesperson. And he talks about his mother and she's a great baker. And these are the pies of her mother. And, and he sells them by the slice, like $3 a slice or whatever it is. And uh, that's how they make a living, right? Um, and so we spent some time with her and I, I ate all of her pies. I tried all of them. They were great. But it was such a sweet story because it was about the son who had been, you know, had was working in a hotel, came back home to his mother and to the family house to sell his his mother's pies, you know. And it was, um, I don't know, it was very sweet. I mean, he, he, he was so dedicated to the family. Uh, he gave up his career to come and do this, you know. So... The idea of standing in the water with the pies is is pretty cool, but the backstory is even cooler. And many other people in that town, which is a tiny little town, have given up careers traveling the world, right? And they came back to be a teacher in the kindergarten, for example, right? So that sense of place was very much there on the Alapa, and that's why I liked So you have a large campaign, I've noticed, to er eradicate the use of the kitchen knife, it seems. Explain, you know, what, what your you're going after and what you're marketing to home chef yeah well i was in um in spain a few years ago at a town that has a big knife factory it's about in two hours from madrid southeast and um they have a museum there of knives and there's a long long tradition of knives in spain uh and if you go through the exhibit you realize that these knives some of them which were quite large uh, are essentially what you look at as a chef's knife now, right? Same basic design. And so what happened was the European chef's knife really was based on the design of a dagger. I mean, that's that's how it came to be. So you think about the European chef's knife, 10 ounces, 12 ounces, um, you know, heavy, thick, you know, fairly thick. They're way too much knife for most people. They're dangerous. When you hold them by the handle, you don't feel you have control of the blade. There's so much steel there and weight. So I, I think they're really inappropriate for most people where they want a lighter knife. They might want a blade that's not quite as long. 
They want a much thinner knife. The thicker the blade, the harder it is to slice through food, right? Because there's more steel to go through. If you look at the, the Japanese history of knives, uh, they have a dozen different knives, right? Uh, like a Nikiri, which is a vegetable knife, or even the Chinese cleaver. Fuchsia Dunlop, who wrote The Foods of Sichuan, one of the great books on Sichuan cooking, she does all her cooking with a $20 cleaver, uh, which is also a great knife. So I think we've been sold a bill of goods here uh, with a chef's knife, which, you know, yeah, I mean, if you're if you're a chef, you can use a chef's knife, right? I mean, but there are other knives out there which are, which are better suited for specific tasks, which are safer, they're lighter, they're easier to use, better for beginners. So I, I don't recommend a chef's knife for most people unless you're a chef. So we were just talking about, you know, new, new methods of cutting. Uh, what are some new ingredients that you're just seeing come out on the market that you think home cooks would benefit from? Well, that's interesting because five, six, well, seven years ago when I started Milk Street, you know, nobody had heard of sitar uh, or harissa or, you know, even fish sauce was something that most people didn't really understand or want to use. Um, but that's a really changed a lot. Right. I mean, now you see these things in, in, in cookbooks coming up all the time. So I think there's, you know, people are expanding their use of spices. They're expanding their use of fermented sauces to oyster sauce and other things and, and fish sauce. Uh, people are starting to buy better quality stuff than the, is in the supermarket. If you buy a bad fish sauce, it's really fishy. But if you buy a good fish sauce, it's uh, it's not, you know, it just has a lot of umami flavor. I'd say that chilies, you know, chilies are not about heat. They're about flavor, really, you know. So understanding a Fresno chili versus an Anaheim chili is starting to use different kinds uh, of those is really great. You know, spice combinations, barad, et cetera, uh, people use are coming more into, into the uh, mainstream. Obviously, gochujang two or three years ago became you can get gochujang potato chips now, you know, gochujang and starting to understand there are different kinds of gochujang, the three different kinds of, uh, of of things they use in South Korea. So it's just expanding in the fermented sauces and the chilies and the spices and uh, the, the, the chili paste. Those are all things coming around that people are starting to use. Um, and, you know, it's amazing that now you can get everything online. When I was starting to cook in the 60s and 70s, you had to go to Chinatown or Korea. You know, you had to go in, into the store to find it. Now you can get it tomorrow. So I, I think that's made cooking this way much easier. And and we do sometimes put things in recipes that, you know, may be a little bit of a stretch for people, but we'll offer a substitute. But, for example, uh, red palm oil from Nigeria, you know, you can't really substitute for that. Either you have it or you don't. So some recipes you can make substitutions, some you can't. Um, and so, you know, the, that makes it harder sometimes to to bring recipes back where the, the key ingredient is not something most people can get. Yeah, I wanted to ask about substitution because it's something that I end up doing a lot. Does it just depend on the recipe, um, on how far you can substitute? Yeah, it does. I mean, um, if you're going to substitute one pepper for another, Urfa pepper or um, Urfa Bieber or something, Bieber Marash pepper uh, for black pepper, yeah, you know, you can do that. Some of them will be fruitier than others, but you can do that. 
But if it's really a like gochujang is gochujang, right? I mean, there's nothing you can do about that. Um, if you have just a regular pepper paste, you can probably substitute something for harissa, for example. It just depends how sensual it is to the flavor of the dish. Which I, I think the the real issue is, are you getting the good stuff? I mean, if you get lousy gochujang that's made in 24 hours in a big factory, the difference in the taste versus a five year age gochujang will be night and day. So it's not just a function of what you can substitute, it's whether you're gonna buy a good version of it, right? Which will make a big difference. Um, so if you have Chinese black vinegar, for example, right? And you have the good stuff versus the lousy stuff, or if you have uh, garlic chili oil, you know? So it's, it's also about quality in terms of taste. When you're creating recipes, do you think about fusion and, you know, if you can take that too far or, or how much fusion you can really put into a recipe before it becomes either yeah. terrible or offensive? Well, first of all, let's talk about offensive. Um, anybody can do anything they want with recipes, because if, if you know anything about the history of food, <laughs> it is nothing but offensive. Like if you want to talk about Mexican cooking, are you talking about Aztec? Are you talking about Yucatan? Are you talking about pre-Spanish, post-Spanish? You know, are you talking about Northern Mexico that uses flour for tortillas? Southern Mexico uses, you know, cornmeal, corn. So it 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 just is a function of everything is 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 a mashup. Cultures have been mashed up ever, for centuries. You know, if, for example, uh, think about the Middle East until like the Second World War War. Uh, to 1950, well, people would move from Syria to Jordan to here and there, right? There was a lot of uh, moving around. And so all those cultures, you know, shared recipes and, and they, they changed. So th there is no such thing as a recipe for something, right? If you want to go to the Middle East and say, I have a recipe for hummus, well, you, you want to get into a fight. That's a really great way to get into a fight. Because if you're from, you know, one area, they have garlic in another area they, in Tel Aviv, they don't put garlic in it. Some people like it light and warm and whipped. Some people like, you know, whatever. Some people use a lot of tahini and if some people don't. So th there is no, this is not a painting on a wall. This is not a Picasso. It's ever changing. And, and you know what? You go back to a town in Mexico five years from now, the food will be different. There'll be changes. People will come. People will add this. People will take away that. So, but to answer your question, yes, I think at one, it's really important to start with telling the story of where the food comes from, giving credit to the person you 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 taught it to you, and, and explaining why they do it a certain way. Why is this flatbread done this way here and that way somewhere else? Then you can say, okay, here's we we want to bring this to you, but we're going to have to make some adaptations as few as possible so that it'll work for you in your kitchen because that's that's really important you have to understand the american kitchen the american palate uh three if you want to just make up a recipe go ahead and make up a recipe i mean uh don't claim it's original or don't i mean don't claim it's authentic you know just be honest with people say look well i was here i had a taste of this i thought it would go with this you see people all the time uh with uh sri lankan food married to the food of Kentucky, Sam Fora, for example, or someone from India who's in New Orleans and is merging those two cultures. This happens every day. So, uh, you know, as long as you're honest about what you know, you give credit to the people who taught it to you, and you explain the origins of it, then I think you can do what you want to do, just as long as you're honest, right? 
one more question before we go. Do you think that American home cooking can ever become too simple? No one's ever asked me that question before. That's a good question. Um, I, I don't know what that means. If you mean too simple in terms of convenience foods, yes. If you're talking about cooking from scratch, uh, some of the greatest dishes in the world are incredibly simple. Um, for example, you know, you can get in uh, when I was in in Mexico in Nayarit, just above Yalapa, uh, in that part of Mexico. You know, they'll just take a little tortilla. They might put a little pork fat on it, and then some you know some beans, and then fold it in half and toast it. Well, that's three ingredients. Is that too simple? No, I think it's pretty good. So I, 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 there's nothing wrong with simplicity. In fact, some of the best recipes in the world are incredibly simple, but then you, every ingredient's got to be handled just right. So no, it, as long as you're not talking about convenience food, I don't think simplicity is a problem. I think it's sometimes the best recipes are simple. Christopher Kimball, the founder of Milk Street, thank you so much. Yeah, pleasure. Great questions. Thank you so much. That was Milk Street's Christopher Kimball. You can find all the recipes we talked about today by heading to 177milkstreet.com. Coming up, stocking your kitchen with books with Matt Sartwell from Kitchen Arts and Letters. Stay with us. Kitchen Arts and Letters is one of the best-known culinary bookstores in the country. Julia Child and James Beard were some of the shop's first customers, but home cooks stopped by as well. Located at 1435 Lexington Avenue in New York, cooks stopped by to get the staff's opinions on books. And joining us now is Matt Sartwell, a managing partner at Kitchen Arts and Letters. He joined the store in 1991 and is a former chair of the Book Committee of the James Beard Awards and a member of the I. AACP's Culinary Classics Committee. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. So what are the, some of the latest books that have arrived at Kitchen Arts and Letters? Because, you know, you also get new books, but you get foreign books and you get books that are ever out of print. So what are you looking at right now? Well, this time of year, uh, in, you know, just after the turn of the calendar, uh, we don't get a lot from the big mainstream publishing houses. They're focused on diet and weight loss books, which we don't really uh, get into. So we've been uh, lucky to draw on a variety of other sources. So um, the books are really kind of all over the map. We have a small new book called Menu Number 5. It's part of a series of small books published by a local author. Each one is, is really a menu for a dinner with recipes and shopping lists. They're very thoughtfully composed. They're good books for somebody who wants to stretch themselves a little bit in order to entertain their friends, but not um, absolutely turn the world upside down so that they are so stressed out when people come over that they can relax and enjoy themselves. This has been a great little series. Um, he keeps doing interesting and creative things with him. His name is Brian Vole, V-O-L-L, -L, and we just, uh, just 
put it out in our newsletter to our customers and people were buying this one and they're catching up on all the older ones. So that's been a lot of fun. We're also looking abroad, like you mentioned. Uh, we just bought in from Finland a book on, um, on wild herbs and other uh, foraged plants uh, written by a chef there. It's called The Wild Herb Cookbook. And it talks about a lot of things that people might overlook, but that are actually very tasty and, and flavorful for use in different kinds of foods. We have a small pair of magazines in a series called Magazine F. Each one focuses on something different uh, from the world in food and drink. The new ones are on whiskey and on kitchen tools. There have been previous issues on everything from salt and chicken to curry and, and kimchi. Those are more reading items than they are cooking items. Uh, but they're the kinds of broad-spectrum explorations of how things are used all over the world that I think excite people who are culinarily curious. And I, I noticed that you put one of, um, of, of Brian Vole's books on the best uh, cookbooks that you, you thought of, of of 2022, so that's you know pretty impressive that uh, you know a local author can make that list. So the basement of Kitchen Arts and Letters, I want to talk about the basement because I, I've heard a lot about it. Uh, what does it look like? Well, um, the basement is, uh, is, is pretty full. We store all kinds of things down there. First of all, it's, I mean, it's, it's overstock on you know, active new titles. Uh, you know, if we have you know, a lot of copies of something that's just come out that we'll keep that in the basement as well. But we, we keep a pretty extensive reference library down there of books that are no longer in print from publishers, but which we feel are important for us to be able to check out. Sometimes our customers come to us uh, looking for them. They're like, you know, I know that there was this book and it had this recipe and I don't really need the whole book. I just want to see this one thing. Uh, and we, we're up and down the stairs all the time uh, bringing things out for people to consult, even if, you know, it's our last copy and we're not going to part with it, we want to be able to answer people's questions with that. The store was founded by uh, a man named Knock Waxman, who was a uh, former book editor and a very, very serious collector of, of books. He put together um, quite a library of important things. I mean, there are books that, that are down there that are, you know, three or four times as old as the story is, and we've been here 40 years this year. Wow. Um, so Nock was always careful to squirrel away copies of um, books by people whose names maybe aren't as well-known now, but who, who shaped uh, the American or the European culinary scene. So, for instance, there was a woman named Sheila Hibben who, uh, who wrote for The New Yorker, who was really one of the first people to explore and write about the regional character of American cooking and um, knock acquired anything he could of hers. I mean, she didn't write that many books, but he always wanted to be able to supply those uh, to somebody if somebody serious came looking for them. Her name isn't so well known that people just sort of walk in the door every day looking for her books. But if somebody does come in and say, what do you have by Sheila Hibben? It's sort of a way that we know that they're, they're already sort of far enough along the path of being serious that we should be able to talk to them about it. So um, it's, it's crowded. Uh, it's a little 
chaotic down there sometimes. We have to sort of figure out the way Knock organized things, um, which was very idiosyncratic, but it's an easy place to sort of lose yourself for hours or days. Sounds like a great place. Um, what are some good cookbooks? I mean, this might be a very broad question for you to answer uh, since there's thousands of books in Kitchen Arts and Letters, but what are some good books for people who want to learn to cook? Well, it, I mean, it depends in part on, on, on the person and how deep they want to go. So if you're a person who sort of thinks of cooking as a, as a way of problem solving, you know, like you come home from, from school or work and you, you want to feed yourself, you don't want to spend a lot of money on, on delivery food or you want to eat better than frozen food, there are good books like Mark Bittman's How to Cook Everything, The Basics which explain things like what's the difference between chopping something and mincing it, and it has good, dependable recipes for a lot of um, what I would call mainstream but contemporary American food. So you can find everything in there from macaroni and cheese to pod thai. And it's a book that's going to be useful for a long time for somebody who, who wants to open up a book and make it a meal or a dish. It'll help you. You could make Thanksgiving dinner out of that book, for instance. So it's a, it's a good all-purpose book. But there are other books that are more about teaching people um, to think uh, a little more creatively uh, and a little more independently on, on how to cook. And I think something like Samin Nasrat's uh, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, for instance, in mm-hmm. which she's trying to give you uh, a sense of how to balance these different factors in in cooking a dish. Uh, although there are, definitely are recipes in there, and they're good recipes, the real point of that book is to understand um, how these different factors affect what you're going to be eating. Um, and she wants to get you to the point where you can open up the refrigerator and say, oh, what have I got? What can I make out of that? And you don't need a recipe. And that's a very different type of cooking. It, it isn't the kind of cooking that everybody wants to do. But for some people, um, that's where the liberation and the excitement is, is to have that kind of freedom. And there are other people who, you know, who really just want good, reliable recipes. And they, um, part of how they unwind is, is just having something that they can trust to work with. And so something like the Bittman book is a, is a better choice for that kind of cook. So I want to talk about kitchen uh, reference books. This is kind of one of my favorite types of cookbooks, something that you can open and just kind of flip through. It's a kind of a, a, it's a tome. It's a gigantic book that you're going to love and keep forever because there's so much in it. Now, I, I kind of think that, in my opinion, there was a lot going on in kitchen reference books in the, the 90s and early 2000s. I'm kind of thinking of Oxford Companion of Food, Cambridge World History of Food, uh, you know, and then other books like uh, Uncommon Fruits and Vegetables that was published in, I think, 86. So is it just me, or did they have a moment kind of then, and is there something on the market now that is a good option? Well, um, it always takes a while for a reference book to sort of um, prove itself and to earn the kind of classic status. So that's one advantage that... um, uh, that those decades have is that um, if they're still around and still being talked about, you know that the, the work
work that someone has done has really earned them uh, the book a place in, on the reference show. So something like Harold McGee's On Food and Cooking, which is also a book, originally a book from the 80s, although it was revised, I think, in the early aughts. Those books don't come along all that often because they represent a vast amount of work and they can be um, really difficult. Somebody really has to pour a lot of effort into them. Uh, I'm thinking also of something like The Flavor Bible by Karen Page and Andrew Dornenberg, which is a great big reference book that's great for somebody who likes to sort of say, all right, you know, I made a mistake at the grocery store and I came home with five bundles of cilantro instead of one, what am I going to do all this? Well, you can go to that book and you can look up cilantro and it talks to you about all the different other things that it goes with. That kind of effort takes somebody to, you know, time and then they need, a book needs to establish its credentials with people. So they come along sometimes uh, under other guises. So for instance, a couple of years ago, a chef here in New York named Missy Robbins uh, published a book on pasta, simply called Pasta. And although it has recipes at the back, the reference material at the front of that book on making pasta, I think, is unequal to anything else we've seen or okay. in my time uh, of being here. And I think it's a really worthwhile book that uh, might masquerade as a cookbook, but in terms of being a problem solver, it's it's really there. Similarly, there was a book published two years ago called The Flavor Equation by Nick Sharma that talks a lot about how flavors interact with each other and how uh, a cook can make informed decisions about accentuating a, f a flavor, muting a flavor, bringing something out in a particular ingredient and, and making it you know, a foreground or a background flavor. Um, that book depends a lot on on food science. He's a trained biologist who's uh, who's bringing that to bear as, uh, in his kitchen. Um, and I think that's going to be a book that in fifteen or twenty years, people are going to be looking back and saying, "Yeah, that was that was a great moment when that book happened." Um, so the books sort of creep in, and sometimes you don't know exactly how strong they're going to be until a little time has gone by. But, I mean, I think the books that you cited are, are, are truly great examples of that. And, um, you know, Elizabeth Schneider turned Uncommon Fruits and Vegetables um, into, or at least part of it, into a later book called Vegetables from Amaranth to Zucchini that was even sort of an expanded version of, of the vegetable part of Uncommon Fruit. Um, and it's unfortunately no longer available but um, it's a book to keep an eye out for if you ever come across one because it's incredibly worthwhile. So do you think those 20-year-old books are still, uh, you know, noteworthy and are, are, they, are they still updated? Like, can I, can I trust their information? I think you can. I mean, in most cases, um, the, the state of the art doesn't really change. I mean, uh, the chemical and physical properties of wheat flour or uh, orange juice don't, don't change with uh, the advance of the years. It's, it never hurts to sort of ask yourself as you're using a, an older book whether there isn't something more current. But I, um, you know, I think something that has stayed around has, has proven itself through the test of time and, it, and, it's, uh, and it's enduring appeal to Kirk's. Um, 
sometimes a book comes along and it has a brief shining moment when it's really the only thing on its subject and it, it kind of dominates the field. But then, um, you know, if we were talking about something that was, an, say, related to the use of appliances, just to pick on air fryers because they have this perpetual moment. I mean, in, in 20 years, um, my guess is that air fryers may have developed and changed and the, uh, an air fryer cookbook won't be as good. If it's a book like, what is, a, what is kohlrabi and what can I do with it? That's not going to change that much. So this is kind of a more unusual question, but do you carry any cookbooks that have either in the back or as a main part of them that have menus already laid out for different occasions or for when you want to have a party or want to have an event but can't figure out what would go well with each other and what flavors would go well and what dishes would go well with each other? We have a few things like that. It's it's not as common a kind of book as it was, say, maybe 25 or 30 years ago, um, in part because I think what people think about when they think about entertaining has changed. And it used to be that um, when you had people over, you kind of felt like you had to really put on a show and you had to like worry about everything from how you set the table to... Um, how you decorated the room, and maybe you worried about what the lighting was like. Um, people, I think, entertain on a more impromptu basis like that, so there's less drive for those highly organized books. But there are still some books that are around that have thoughtfully put together menus. One book that I've really had a lot of fun with is one called Sunday Suppers at Luke's by Suzanne Goyne. Uh, she's a chef in Los Angeles. She has several restaurants there, and Luce was one of them. And it's a collection of, of menus, and it's like a main course, a couple of sides, and, and a dessert. And they're really they're smart. They're seasonally organized. Uh, you know, being in Los Angeles, although she has great year-round access to produce, she does pay attention to the to the way the seasons change there. And the cooking is is I think for the most part, very accessible to uh, a serious home cook, even though it is a restaurant chef writing the book. I will say that I learned from direct experience that there were times cooking her recipes where I thought to myself, I don't know why she tells me to do that. I don't need to do that. I know how to cook this kind of thing. And then it turned out that actually the advice she gave me was absolutely necessary. So if you pick up that book and you sometimes think, Wow, she's like super cautious. I don't have to be super cautious. Well, actually, it's really a good idea to follow Suzanne's advice. She knows what she's talking about. When I'm kind of thinking about that area and, you know, California and the seasons of of food, I'm thinking kind of about, about Chez Panisse. We had Alice Waters on a, lot, uh, a couple of years ago, and, you know, a lot of her books have menus that, you know, they've had for special events or even just looking at Chez Panisse's regular menu, I think, would kind of give somebody an idea of kind of what to plan for different seasons. Yeah, and, and there, is a, there is a Chez Panisse menu cookbook, which was published, oh gosh, uh, late 80s. I mean, it's been around for a long time and, and stayed in print. So that's another great resource for somebody who, who's thinking that way. Um, when cooks are thinking seasonally uh, and paying attention, you know, and which is something that Alice Waters was really a, a very early advocate for, 
it does mean that you're paying attention to getting the best ingredients. And so the ingredients are, um, they're helping you out. I mean, you still have to pay attention and be a, uh, a solid and thoughtful cook. But if you're starting out with something that is close to the peak of what it could be, uh, you're a lot better off than if you're serving, you know, some vegetable or fruit that's been flown in from halfway around the world. So you see a lot of cookbooks, and I'm, I'm wondering what fields do you think need to be written about more? Because I think a lot of cookbooks these days follow the trends of society, like five ingredient recipes, as, or as you were mentioning, air fryer or instant pot recipes. What do you think needs to be written about more? Well, I mean, there's always a need for people, you know, people always want recipes that that help them solve an immediate problem. Like, you know, I come home from work and the kids are starving and my partner is not home yet and I have to get food on the table. I mean, that's a, that's a real thing. And, and practical books that help people do that are, are, are important and useful. But I think from a broader perspective, uh, there's still a, a vast amount of the world whose cuisine is not really documented well in English. And, um, there is so much left to be said about many parts of the world. So South America, for instance, I mean, uh, there are some, some really interesting books on Peru, but finding books in English about Brazil is a struggle, to say nothing of Argentina or Venezuela or Ecuador, Central America also. I mean, try to find a book in English dedicated to the food of Central America, and I think you'll be looking for a long time. Um, a lot of Africa uh, is sort of off the radar for the big publishing houses. There's a little bit more interest there, but I mean, given the size of the country and its uh, geographic and cultural diversity, there's a lot left to be said. But you know, I was uh, responding to a question from a customer the other day about um, about a particular noodle dish from China, and there's, I mean. Chinese cookbooks seem like there are lots of them, but then when you start actually trying to narrow in on on specifics specifics of Chinese cuisine, there's a lot left to be um, to be addressed. And we're always paying attention to the books that that plug the recipes into a broader sense about how the food fits into the culture. Like you know, is this dish something that people um, only make for special occasions, you know, is it for celebrations? Is it the kind of thing that you would make if, you know, your your future in-laws came over? Are you trying to impress people? Or is it the kind of thing that if you're home and you're sick, your grandmother might show up with, with some of it for you to sort of offer you comfort food? There's a lot about the way that people eat that isn't found in the recipe itself. So when a book takes you to to a country or to a region and it says, you know, these are the these are the things that are special here and these are the things that are every day, it helps you understand better how how people eat there, how the meals are composed, and it probably alerts you to part of the larger history of that place and, you know, is this is this exotic? You know, is this something that people have to make a real effort to obtain, or is it really part of the everyday table? So this also might be a broad question, but when you're either recommending or reading cookbooks, 
or food literature for yourself, do you like the classics or do you go for something more unusual? <laughs> well, I mean, I think, I think there are a lot of satisfactions to be had going in both directions. Um, you know, you had asked earlier about the possibility that something that might be a, uh, an interesting reference book might lose um, some of its currency and might not be as well informed after the passage of time. And that is something you sometimes have to think about with, uh, with classic books. It's just when a book was written, it was really um, saying something unusual. And uh, as time passes, there might be other books published on the same subject that continue to shed more light and expand the general body of knowledge. Um, so you have to be careful about that. But I mean, we sell plenty of books here that have been in print longer than I've worked here or the store's been open, you know, whether it's Marcella Hazan's uh, classics of Italian cooking or Julie Sani's classic Indian cooking. Those are books that really uh, were so solidly put together and they, uh, they've really stood the test of time. But, you know, I'm, I'm as vulnerable as anybody to the allure of the shiny new thing. I mean, uh, I've been doing this for a long time. If something comes along that's talking about um, something that I haven't really thought about before or been exposed to before, I'm gonna, I am going to pay attention to that. I, you know, I mentioned Peru earlier, and we were lucky enough to find out that uh, a chef uh, in Lima named Virgilio Martinez published a book on indigenous Peruvian ingredients that's organized by altitude. So it starts at things that come from the ocean. And it, then it, as you go deeper to the book, you go further and further up into the mountains. So you get a sense about how um, different foods relate to each other. Are they commonly found um, nearby? Would they be combined by, by local cooks? I am not likely ever to have immediate access to great Peruvian ingredients, but I think looking at this, I understand how certain things make sense in Peruvian cooking now in a way that I didn't before, and I think that's really worthwhile. Matt, thank you so much for talking to, to me today. It was such a great time. Delighted to do it. I, I really appreciate your reaching out to me. was Matt Sartwell, who is the managing partner at Kitchen Arts and Letters Bookstore in New York, New York. You can stop by at 1435 Lexington Avenue, New York, New York. Reach them by phone at 212-876-5550 by email at letters at kitchenartsandletters.com. Or if you're not in the New York area, just go to kitchenartsandletters.com where you can read their opinions and shop a limited selection of their books. Nerds is produced and hosted by me. 
We're on the web at newsnerdspodcast.com, where you can catch up with episodes that you missed, subscribe to our newsletter, play our daily mini-crosswords, and contact us. Find News Nerds on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. We're also on community radio station KGVM every other week at 5.30 p.m. Mountain Time. They're at kgvm.org or 95.9 FM on your radio. Consider supporting them by going to kgvm.org slash support dash kgvm. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you next week. Thank you.